There's a book from the 1930s called Strength of Will and How to Develop It. Now, in this book, it prescribes certain tasks to improve the human condition. I read through them, and I'll even confess that I tried some of them earlier this week, and allow me just to say, Collective Church, they are disgusting. They are gross. They are horrible, horrible practices, but I'm going to go over them right now for all of you. Sound good? Theo? Sounds good. Okay, here we go. If you want to try to improve the human condition, step one, scatter 50 coins on the floor, then quietly and slowly pick them up and place them in a pile. Now get this, the author suggests doing this once per day for several days, increasing the number of coins as you go. Ew, that is disgusting, right? And if you all look into your chair right now, you're all gonna have 50 coins. We're gonna do it right now. That's joking, this isn't Ellen. I'm just being stupid. Here we go, second one. This is the second task for improving the human condition. Take a book of at least 150 pages and turn the pages one by one quietly and slowly making a pencil mark on every page as you go. Ew, another disgusting thing to do. And then lastly, beginning with the number one, it says to count out loud slowly and distinctly for 10 minutes. My response to that would be, ew. Welcome to Collective Church. Yes, that's revolting. None of us, it sounds ridiculously pointless. And guess what? That's the point. The author literally says these exercises accomplish nothing outside of one's mind, but help the mind itself. How? Because such activities test one's patience and thus build it. It's all about the purpose of testing and building patience. Because if we're honest, as a group of people coming from all parts of Los Angeles to this room together, we're honest, you're not patient. You're not a patient person. I don't even know all of you that personally, but I know one thing, you ain't patient. You know how I know that? Because I'm not patient. None of us here are patient. And if you don't believe me, how many here like this? Derek, take us there. Anybody like this symbol? No. When we see this, what do we do? All of you curse. Yes, yes, he just flipped me off. That's what we do. We get it. We flip off our computer screen or whatever it is. We are horn honking, microwaving, next day shipping, fast food eating, express lane humans. Even Ralph Waldo Emerson, he waxes on with his infamous quote where he says, how much of human life is lost in waiting? Now, obviously those are fairly casual and even silly and stupid kinds of waiting, but we are no strangers to the other more serious and vexing angles of of waiting, and for some of us, perhaps even in this moment. See, I'm, I'm assuming there are people here, there are single people here waiting for the hopes of marriage. I'm assuming there are childless couples here waiting for the hopes of a family. I'm assuming that there are people here waiting for justice within our government or our politics, waiting for someone who longs right now. There's got to be people who long for for that meaningful career. I was speaking to a group of nine people, I believe, the other day, and I was saying, are you any of you in the careers you want to be? None. We're waiting for our significant career. There are people here right now of different race and ethnicity who are waiting to not be judged by the color of their skin. And even here, waiting in this church for the church to be the church. So collective church, people here, how do you wait? Do you wait poorly 
or do you wait well? In Scripture, nobody, I believe, or very few people wait as well as the man named Joseph. And if you've been with us in the 16 series so far, we have been kind of going, like I said, over the freaks and geeks, and we've been coming across lots of randos like Barack, not Obama, but we're coming across a guy named Barack soon. There's a bunch of randos we don't really know about, but everybody here, Christian or not, has a frame of reference for Joseph, for Joseph. Even if you just know he has a blinged out coat, you do know that Joseph, something about him, Right? Now, as a warning, I'm just going to say this as a bit of a preface. Joseph's story is extremely long, and it's really detailed, and has tons and tons of layers, so we cannot cover it all. But know this. Joseph is a juggernaut. He is a juggernaut. Other than Christ, Joseph is considered the greatest example of godly character and integrity in all of the Bible. In all of the Bible. He and about two others are the only ones that have zero recording of sin. Not that they didn't sin, they just didn't write it down, okay? But despite all of that, it's really tempting. If you're coming to here, you're just going to read Joseph's life. It's super tempting to like, look at all these heroic moments. Look at all of his achievements. And, and, And apparently he was like uber hot. Like Joseph was hot. Like Casey Fritz level of prettiness. You get it. I'm pointing to my wife. You get it. I just want to read this verse. Genesis 39, 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. Do you want to know what Joseph looks like? Take a picture. But to only focus on the good is to actually glamorize for Joseph an extremely grueling life of faith and waiting. So we can't miss the largely silent, desperate years of Joseph where he was betrayed by his own family. He was separated from his father, who they both deeply loved one another. False rumored to be dead and gone, dealt with the horror of slavery, falsely accused of rape, and placed in an Egyptian prison for years on end. That's Joseph's life. Joseph's life. And it's knowing this type of stuff, which makes the meaning of Joseph's names, which means he takes away and he'll add. That's what his name means. It shows how it really comes to life. But again, all of this, I just want to point out, makes a very different kind of waiting. For Christians especially. Because what a lot of churches are maybe even doing right now in this moment is they're delivering sermons or talks or messages and they're saying, hold out. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good within our life. And there's nothing wrong with that, and that's beautiful. But what we're not ready to deal with is what happens when things goes from not just bad to good, but from bad to worse. Like, I'm in a poop storm, and now it's a full-blown poop hurricane. Now what? That, that is Joseph's life, when things go bad to worse worse. And yet he isn't placed in Hebrews chapter 11 for any enduringly, like, enduring any of like the patiently stuff in prison as we just mentioned, he's written in Hebrews chapter 11. He's immortalized in chapter 11 because of his bones. He's placed there because of his bones. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 22. It should be on the screen. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. He's immortalized in Hebrews 11 as one of the 16 because he believed in what will be. 
This is a summary of what we just read earlier, but I do want to read the last two verses one more time of Genesis chapter 50. Bear with me. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. Now, 110 years old was the average lifespan or the expected lifespan of Egyptian males. We have verifiable, countless facts on this very truth. And even though Joseph experienced an Egyptian burial, if you guys think about the mummifying process, remember the whole put your organs in a jar type of a thing? Even though that happened to him, he considered his bones Hebrew. Now look at verse 26 one more time. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This collective church is wild. This is wild. This is the very last verse in the book of Genesis. And as far as our 16 series goes, we will not be returning to the book of Genesis. But drink deeply from this moment, because I want us to notice how the book of Genesis ends. Everything in the Bible has rhythms and purposes and how it's structured. And Moses, as the author, is a genius. Genesis, if you think about it, poetically begins with what? With God breathing life into the cosmos, into the vast expanses, and it ends with death. Genesis starts with life, and it ends with death. Genesis starts with light, and it ends with darkness. It starts with a cosmic, and it ends in a coffin. Why? Why does Genesis do this? Because of exactly what Joseph was commemorated for. The Joseph story is not just the last items of Genesis. It is the resolution of the book of Genesis. Meaning, as it closes, it looks forward to the day that God will bring new life, new births, and a renewal for his people and their land, which is the book of Exodus. Again, Hebrews eleven twenty-two, made mention of the Exodus to the Israelites. So essentially, what am I saying? Genesis ends in waiting. Genesis ends in waiting. See, for Joseph, what indescribable faith could possibly bring this man? If you remember how we're defining faith, warranted certainty. Because what is he saying? He's saying, literally, place my bones in the soil of fulfillment. That's what he's saying. He's saying, actually bury myself in warranted certainty. When the package comes post-death, he's been waiting his entire life on package from Amazon. When it comes in post-my death, bury me in that box. That's what he's saying. Joseph's entire life has been waiting, and so now is his death. He's now even waiting in his death. Joseph knew so intimately that he would not see fulfillment in his timing. That hardship will come, and he says, in the end, when you arrive in the fulfillment, remember, it's all going to be okay. Wasn't, uh, and I might totally jack up this quote, but uh, John Lennon who said, in the end, everything's going to be okay, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. Was that John Lennon? Nobody here knows? Great! I think that's it. In the end, everything will be okay, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. I'm going to say it's John Lennon. You see, out of all, get this, out of all of the epic moments they could have picked, the author of Hebrews could have picked for Joseph's life, out of all of it, what happens here? What is he commemorated for, like I said? He puts him in there for the very thing that he could not have any control over. He's mentioned for something he didn't even really do. 
This is all giving responsibility to God and to God alone, as it showcases the immensity of God gloriously bound to his promises. God is bound to his promises. I hope we don't feel like it's cliche to at least know or believe or to tell one another, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's warts and certainty with one hand to pound our chest in faith while the other one is clinging to heaven for desperation. Now, I don't know about you, but this left me pretty rocked this week. Some of you may not care. Some of you may go, no, this is pretty, this is pretty breathless. Excuse me. This is pretty breathless. How does one arrive here in the patience of what will be? How did Joseph get to the point going, it's going to be fine. Bury me in the soil of his fulfillment. Because right now, there's some of us who are going, this is a living, waking nightmare. Well, to know what will be, we have to look at what was. Joseph's climax in the last chapters of Genesis exists because of his crucible. Look at Genesis chapter 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. So Joseph was pulled from prison where he was falsely accused. But what this shows us is that he was in prison for 12 to 13 years. I did 10 years of solitary confinement and that was long enough. (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) Thank you, one person who believes me, Hillary. Everybody else is like, I can see it. Yeah, Casey in jail, I can see it. It's keeping you on your toes. Hillary knows I've never been to prison. Jeez, collective church. Now, mind you, mind you, pharaohs back then weren't much of wardens. What that means is these prisons that they had that he was in, an Egyptian prison, these prisons that they had, these are waiting rooms for execution. That's what Egypt practiced as form as justice, was just purely execution. So the fact that he's in this pit shows a lot of grace from Potiphar, if you know the story, while at the same time, it's just a waiting room. It's just a waiting room. Egyptian prison cells back then, because they weren't actually prisons, were more just a refurbished watering hole. It was a long, giant pit in the ground for the mere purpose that he can't escape. Let's put him in a giant hole. That is where Joseph was for 12 to 13 years. Okay, is everybody with me? So in this sandy hot pit used for an escape, which is Joseph's basically professor on faith and patience. It is this crappy circumstance, which is his professor, meaning it is only waiting, which teaches us how to wait. I think many of us here want these quick fixes or podcasts or books that just teach us these aspects. But for here, for waiting, for developing patience, it only comes in and by and through actually waiting. Meaningful change is rarely a single event ever. It is a process. The Puritans understood this reality well and developed something of like a doctrine of waiting around it where they said, and they referred to this as God's school. So the Puritans knew this so well, they said any time of waiting, it is God's school. And it's there in the school that scholars and theologian historians would have said for Joseph that his, curric- his curriculum is the same for him that it is for you. What was Joseph doing for 12 or 13 years? The same thing that we are able to do, the same thing that we are supposed to focus on. That being this, the testimonies of old. 
The stories his father would have told Joseph as a child around the fire were stories of his ancestry. This is what Joseph chewed on. So the stories that he would have known of Noah had to wait 100 years for the storm. No, your grandparents had to wait 75 years for a kid. Jacob had to wait 14 years for Rachel. This is what he would have known. Romans 15, four says, for whatever was written in former days were written for our instructions that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God's word, God's testimonies as nourishment for a waiting soul so that we might gain hope. It's our feast in the famine. So what I think Joseph would have done with these stories around the fire, knowing deep within him as he's in the pit, as he's in the hole, is saying waiting is not a mistake. Waiting is not a mistake. But to put us in the pains of waiting for us right now, collective church, is anybody in a season of waiting? Actually, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to. Some people are going for it. You don't have to put raise your hand. But to put us in the pains of waiting, I would say don't we falter and fall. Meaning we want fresh revelation. We in Los Angeles, we want spiritual innovation. Never expecting God's word to be enough. And yet here we have Joseph who was more satisfied with God's word in the pains of waiting than needing new, fresher insight. The simple truth that Joseph realized was the common thread of his heritage was that Abraham trusted, Isaac trusted, Rebecca, Jacob, and now Joseph trusts God's word. Joseph now trusts God's word. I really do hope for our church. I really do hope for our church that if you are expecting me as a pastor or any other pastor or even your discipleship groups to actually be your end-all, go-all for any sort of predicament in your waiting series, this church or your waiting situation, this church is not enough, this group is not enough, the word of God is all he had was in the pit of that hole. And if that is not enough for you or enough for us, I think we're in a much more different world of hurt because all I can have to offer you is God's word. I would hope in our prayer for our church is that his word would be enough light for you in this present darkness. There was this old interview I read of um, some trapeze artist. They're called the Flying Rodellis. And once they told this author in this interview, they said that there's a very special relationship between a flyer and a catcher. The flyer's the one who flies and the catcher's the one who catches. And they said that this unique relationship for the flyer especially was what would happen is as they would let go of the rope, as they let go of the swing in midair, what they were supposed to do each and every time was let go and guess what? Wait. The flyer would be in midair and be as still as possible and all they had to do was wait. And trapeze artists will tell you it feels like you're waiting for a thousand hours. Just feels like you're continually waiting. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck them from midair. Now though, they say the most dangerous thing a flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. This throws everything off and can lead to certain death. So every flyer must wait in absolute trust that they will be caught by the catcher. But all they have to do and all they must do is wait with their arms out. Some of you are in midair right now and you have to let go of whatever God is telling you to let go of. 
but you can't probably at this moment feel his arms grabbing you. And that's when we're in that moment, it feels like a thousand hours, we're asking ourselves, what if I don't get what I so desperately need? What if I don't get what I so desperately have worked for? I have planned out, I want. Hence, should I try and catch the catcher? You see, like Joseph, his life was one giant circus-sized trapeze show, letting go of swings and expectations. But he learns from God's word, and this is my encouragement, that the catcher has always caught, even through his ancestry, the flyer. So as he's in the pit, the catcher catches the flyer. The catcher catches the flyer. But all of this, making the idea of waiting and the idea of patience is a bit more challenging when we talk about it this way to our instincts. Meaning, if this is God's school and we're not just waiting for somebody in our community to, to you know, mature, we're not just enduring patiently the sins of our community or the sins of one another, what we're learning is if waiting isn't a sin or it's not wrong and actually it's right. So the question is not why is waiting so hard, it's why is patience with God, our catcher, so difficult? Why is patience with God so difficult? The prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament, he was sorely distressed and disappointed with God and his misery was provoked by the spectacle of threat of a nation. Some of you might be in that boat right now. And to this prophet, it was unthinkable that God would ever allow evil to happen to this nation. So much so that he cried this out to God. should be on the screens. Habakkuk 1. You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It's a bit archaic, but I think you get, he's saying, you're doing nothing, God. And good people are dying and good people are getting hurt. And I think there's a chance that in our day and age, impatience has now been counted as or blossomed into a virtue. We're now trying to be passionately urgent. Leaders are passionately urgent. No, Habakkuk is impatient and it is not a virtue. So God, are you so uninterested that you care? I care more about this hellbound world than you. So the prophet protested. He mounted up his watchtower and he demanded an answer from God. Look at verse two. God answers. This is God's reply to him calling out him to him calling out the Lord. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits at appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. And here it is. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. AKA, just you wait. What Habakkuk has not yet learned, but what Joseph has discovered in prison is that we are lousy, lousy gods. I know what's best, so I'm going to fix it. How many times have we said or thought, if I was God, I'd be married by now. If I was God, I would throw Trump out of office. If I was God, Chick-fil-A's would be open on Sunday. If I was God, Imagine Dragons would stop making music. How many times have we said this? But this is why waiting is so dangerous because it acknowledges our limitations. 
Every time we wait, we are reminded, I am a lousy God. And it uncovers how our attitudes are much larger than our abilities. This is what I would do. Can you? Do you? Will you? No, I can't. I like how ethicist Lewis Smedes puts it. He says, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait, for, uh, we wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Especially here for Christians, often we wait for God's resources, but we do not want his timing. We want in God's involvement, we do not want his calendar. We want his gifts, but we'll pass on the giver. We want change, but we do not want the circumstance which brings it about. And Joseph in Genesis 50, I guess according to Emerson, he's living a wasted life. When he makes them swear to bury his bones in the redeemed land, he isn't just submitting that God's idea or God's timing is good. He is saying over and again, it is gloriously better than anything we could ever possibly imagine. See, Habakkuk wants him to vanquish enemies now. Joseph is like, I want you to vanquish the enemies on your time. It is an entirely different paradigm shift. I hope that we don't just say that or think that, yes, yes, God is patient with us. God embodies patience. He is long-suffering. Yes, the Bible warns that that will come to an end one day, that there is a border to his long-suffering. But what we see in the Old Testament is probably what many of us here, especially in Christians, would say or think or claim as truth is that the Old Testament God is a God of, of wrath-slinging deity who lacks in care and provision. How could he be patient? How could we consider him patient? Friends, that is the absolutely, that is so untrue. The Old Testament is a concert of God's slowness to anger. He is a loving father. So if God ever is moving too slow for you or with others, with our enemies, it is because he loves greatly. I want to really pound in the point now that he is patiently waiting for them, for these certain people that you may be frustrated with or enemies as he patiently waited for you. If you're here and not a Christian, have you ever considered that as you think you may be waiting on this God to show himself, but rather he is waiting on you? I love this verse in the New Testament from the book of Peter. It says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. Whatever you think is slow... No, no, God is not slow. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Even when Paul pays tribute to Christ's patience in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, gets it, he puts it aside, he puts it alongside, parallel to the love of God. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Steadfastness is also translated as patient endurance. So love and patient endurance are interlocked. So then God, who is ample and has ample reason to walk out on us, doesn't. He doesn't. We're much quicker to throw in the towel with one another, with our faith, with God, with the church, but with the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ, to death even, we find that God can never have depleted patience. He cannot be exhausted of waiting. So the next time when we're saying, God, faster, God, now, God, give me, God, where are you? 
And God is saying, though it linger, it will certainly come. It is because of his very, very large and transcendent love for you. And when this is realized, it truly morphs as it did with Joseph, what is. So I'm going to end with this. We discussed what was for Joseph. We discussed what will be for Joseph. I want to end with what is for Joseph. Because how does any of this change or relieve our present moment of waiting? When we're asking, why God? Why am I waiting? God, if you can do anything you want to do, why don't you bring relief? Do you want to know the answer to that? Get your quill on parchment. I'm going to give you the answer. Here's the answer. So why am I waiting? I don't know. I have no idea. I certainly don't understand all of this, but I believe at least in part what God does in us while we wait is just as, if not more important, to what we're waiting for. Pastor John Orberg here in California says it this way. Biblically, waiting is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. So waiting is not a circumstantial transformative act, but a character transformative act. Just look at what God did through Joseph in this present waiting. Genesis 9.32, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. As a slave, as put into a pit, as sold into the horrors of, of, of absolute prison and slavery, like I said, and betrayed, he prospered. He wasn't licking his wounds. He wasn't cynical, which is a lot what patience means. It means enduring without cynicism. So rather than doing any of that or complaining, this is what he does. Joseph served, loved, prayed, embraced, worshiped, and labored wholeheartedly. So what that means is godly waiting is not passive waiting. And as a pastor, I've had countless conversations where there's this expectation that we are just waiting and thus we do not face up to reality. That is so false. Followers of Jesus, in your waiting, you must take appropriate steps, make decisions, engage and own up to your own, to my own discipleship and the responsibilities of our community. Now I have this blurb in here where I'm probably going to get myself into trouble for what I'm about to say next, but I'm going to go for it. I believe LA is often a bridge to get us from where we are to where we want to be. LA is not a place that's seen as to invest or to put roots in or to plant gardens in. LA is not seen as this place. So guess what that happens or guess what happens to a church community in a city like that? It's used. Collective church can be used by some. Churches around, I've been in a couple different churches in Los Angeles. They're used. And eventually, those churches die. Does anybody here have any idea of the lifespan of a church in LA? It's small. Very, very small. Because this wasn't ever considered, this wasn't ever considered, or other churches for the past however many hundreds of years wasn't ever considered a home, but rather than a hostel. I am just passing through. And Joseph, though, had no idea how long he would be in a pit or in a prison or even a palace. 
my collective church, hear me. His heart, his motivation, his attitude, and his faith approached it as if it was eternity. He goes, if this is where I am, this is where I will be. Church, I don't know how long you're going to wait, how long you're going to be here. I especially don't know how long you're going to wait and have to endure with patience. But I will say this, it's longer than you expect. It's always longer than we expect. So if you consider this your home, this community, your family, but we approach it like a hostel, if we consider this community, but approach one another with, with, with haste, each other's sanctification, or if we consider me, or if you consider me, or Lorenzo, or Isaac, your pastors, but expect us to be your end all for counseling, theology, feeding, reason for even attending, and here's the part where I get myself into trouble, then you are hurting more than helping this church. A community of faith-filled individuals is a community of Joseph's. This is our prayer for the church, that you may not know how long you will be here. You may not even want to invest here because I'm going to go back home to Alabama in three months when school does X, Y, and Z. We would encourage a mindset, a love, a care in this body that is eternally focused that while I am here, I will treat it as if there is nothing else to wait for. While I am here, I will approach one another with the exact, in the hopes of the same patience that the Lord had with me. Would that not change the entire dynamics of discipleship, the way we read the Bible, the way we come on a Sunday morning? Would not it change the dynamics of our service, our volunteering, our time, our finances? We care so much in this church about investment and engagement, not because we're just trying to get crap done. Forget, that is, bleh. who? We're not trying to become rich or anything like that. Why we care about investment, engagement, is because A, we're biblically told to, and I would say B, this is what we were made for. And so for us not to be there, then you are incomplete and so are we. The spirit of God has more for this church. So while we are in a season of waiting, let's allow it and let's pray that it is a season of prospering. Because what if, what if collective church, that waiting wasn't some sort of curse to endure, but a gift to enjoy? What if traffic in this stinking city was a gift? What if we are the most blessed city in the world because we have more traffic time than anybody else? Can you imagine? What if we weren't waiting for a fuller life, but waiting is the fuller life? My hope and prayer is that would dramatically change the faith of this community, change this community from the inside out. Let me pray for us.